You're listening to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast on the Odyssey Robots Radio Network. What's up, everybody? It is I, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, hero to tens of ones, as effective as a dose of hydroxychloroquine, and host of this, the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. For those of you who've been following the IC Robots Radio Network for some time, and by some time I mean at least the last several years, you may remember the initial run of this show, which started, ran for a few episodes, and then ended abruptly as I was called away to a full-time job that uh, sucked most of the creative energy and will to live out of me. Um, But three years later, that job was left in the rear view, and I am back with more than enough time to hit the old record button now and again and share my thoughts, reflections, and observations on life that the original run of the show was so well known for. Ah, who am I kidding? The original run of the show was unknown and long forgotten, but that's water under the bridge. As they say, we're back now. This is the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast 2.0, Episode 1. Let's get started. Yeah, that's one of those songs. It's like it's it's out there in the ether. It's in the it's in the lexicon. But I honestly had no idea who it was by or who performed it. And um, I actually think it's one of those songs that um, there's been multiple versions of it floating out there. The first version that I just happened to come across and use for the bumper on this show um, appears to be by a um, 1980s era British soul group known as Simply Red, and I wish, uh, the, too bad there's not a video component to this show, because uh, this the Simply Red guy is something else. This geek is looking like uh, Yahoo Sirius meets uh, Carrot Top or something. Um, it's got some interesting flowing red locks going on. Um, but yeah, apparently, If You Don't Know Me By Now is a song written by Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff and recorded by the Philadelphia soul musical group Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, which became their first hit after being released as a single in 1972. So it's one of those uh, R&B soul type songs that then uh, some weird 80s group did a simpering rendition of um, years later, Um, kind of in the vein of uh, Michael Bolton and all that. Uh, But anyway, uh, to get back on track, as we're already on a very um, veganist uh, um, tangent, just out of the gates here. Um, this was all apropos of me 
introducing myself if you've never heard the show before or reintroducing myself if we know each other from uh, my past uh, audio life. And since that latter category probably doesn't extend much further than um, Hollywood Eric Purcell, I'm going to focus on the former. If you are listening to this show, you probably stumbled your way here via the IC Robots radio network um, and IC Robots Stuck at Home show, which he is currently producing at a Herculean clip. But if somehow you are listening to this and you are not familiar with IC Robots or his radio empire, ISR is the greatest podcaster of all time and space. Uh, He sort of came onto the scene by way of, I guess it's fair to say, the retro subgenre. His original show, The Toys R Us Report, started off talking about old action figure lines and other toys, but then quickly and rightly expanded into really just being a deep dive into the mind of Icy Robots, um, kind of through the vessel of his hobbies and his interests. And that's something we're going to talk about here as I introduce myself to you. Um, And I guess it all makes sense that the whole way that I met Icy Robots many, many years ago, this was probably in, I would say, 1995, Um, somewhere thereabouts. Anyway, we met because at the time we were both working at a United Artists uh, movie theater in Santa Rosa, California as ushers. We were the people that would go into a theater after a showing and uh, sweep up the popcorn and throw away soda, cups, um, etc., uh, we'd also take turns. Some of it, sometimes we'd be at the door tearing tickets. Um, I eventually migrated into working the box office. Um, I think both of us were fairly adept at avoiding ever having to deal with the concession stand, which I don't know how ISR feels about it, but to me, that was just the most, uh, loathsome position working in a movie theater because, um, that's where customers tended to be the most belligerent And then you also had to incense these belligerent animals by, um, we were compelled to upsell them to, uh, you know, someone orders a uh, uh, medium popcorn, blustery red faced man walks up and orders his medium popcorn and you tell him, would you like a large for 25 cents more, sir? And then he, oh, he gets just irate. Oh, I want a medium. So anyway, uh, yeah, fortunately I, I did uh, concessions like once. I, I don't know about ISR. Um, I don't think he did concessions either. But anyway, we met working at the movie theater. And what struck me about this guy right away was that he had very defined interests and he was extremely passionate about them. Now, what I mean is everyone that you encounter has their interests. I mean, honestly, you will sometimes find people that just really aren't into anything. And that's that is particularly chilling. But um, still not great is when people kind of like stuff, sort of, but eh, you know, I, I just, to me, uh, I'm not sure what then defines them. Um, what, what I can, uh, you know, latch onto when I'm trying to understand them or interact with them. But in the case of ISR, he had very clear things he was interested in and he didn't just kind of like them. He was able to take you on a deep dive. Um, you know, we'd be standing there in the lobby, and he'd be telling me about some 90s uh, hip-hop act that he was into. At the time, it was the 90s, so we didn't really call it 90s hip-hop. He was telling me about hip-hop music he liked. And, you know, I I liked hip-hop music okay. I didn't have a, as um, 
much of an interest in it and certainly not the extensive background um, or understanding of it that ISR had. But his uh, passion about it was just so infectious that we'd be standing there in the lobby, he'd be telling me about it, and suddenly I'm just finding myself transported. You know, I'm basically like in this arena and, and Biggie Smalls is rapping on the stage and the, the Wu-Tang Clan are, uh, are talking to me. You know, it, it was just, it was, he was able to like pull you into his world through the sheer force of his passionate interest. And that's what he does on his show. And so probably even if I had never uh, seen or heard of ISR again after that year or so that we worked at the movie theater, um, he would have always stuck out in my mind because you don't meet people every day who, who allow themselves to have that passion. I feel like a lot of people when they're young just kind of get dulled down by uh, social pressures, by peer pressures, just kind of tepidly go along with what they're supposed to like, but don't really uh, ever allow themselves to discover what it is they like. And on one hand, I mean, what does it matter what people like? You know, personal preferences, hobbies, all that stuff can seem kind of frivolous, especially, I mean, look at the world we're in today where God only knows what tomorrow will bring. But I do think that when you when you use hobbies or interests as a springboard for just allowing yourself to be passionately alive. I think that they fill um, a deeper meaning than one might think, particularly in a world where, you know, people don't really have, you know, religion anymore. They don't really have traditions in the same way that, that ancient peoples had, you know, we need something, you know, human beings need something to, to at least delude themselves that there's meaning in the world. And, Passionate interests, passionate hobbies, giving yourself over to that passion and sharing that enthusiasm with other people. To me, that's just kind of like the modern secular way of finding human meaning. So obviously I've met other people in the decades since who share that uh, passion about their interests and their um, generosity of enthusiasm. Um, But ISR was really the first person where I recognized that in him and it just kind of inspired me to realize that's what... what, uh, I myself wanted to aspire to, to continue to stoke my own interests, share that enthusiasm with others, and funnel it into creative pursuits that are not necessarily aimed at fame and glory, but more just uh, giving voice to the ordinary, to the everyday. Um, And that's kind of the aim of this show. I, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, hope to sensationalize the everyday here, talk about... uh, things that I encounter or observe, things that I have encountered or have observed in my exceedingly ordinary, mundane life, but elevated through the prism of passion and interest. And I will close out this opening segment with one last story about passion and interest and ISR that um, I'm sure he does not remember, but is kind of one of my formative ISR stories. And it's also... uh, a good um, look at how what really matters is that you are passionate and interested about whatever, and that those specifics can even change over time, but the energy that you bring to the proceedings does not, or ideally should not. So one of the things that I've had a lifelong interest in and passion for is the great sport of professional wrestling. And I will talk about this in at length um, at numerous points over the course of this show, should this show continue. Um, but in this one particular instance, 
this would have been the late 90s. Yeah, this would have been 1999. I was living in Santa Rosa in a house with two roommates, and we were all pretty heavily into watching professional wrestling at the time. Uh, WCW, WWF, ECW, and then we were also getting into watching UFC and other mixed martial arts tapes and frontier martial arts uh, uh, wrestling tapes from Japan by way of Video Droid in Santa Rosa, California, where one of the roommates worked. Um, so anyway, we were a wrestling household, um, and I was into wrestling, and I'd been into wrestling since I was a kid and had been away from it for a while in high school, but then had gotten back into it as a young adult, but still it just, it hadn't clicked for me yet just how into it I was or just how into it I always had been and just how much it had informed my aesthetic worldview and would continue to do so moving forward. So anyway, there was an independent wrestling event that was taking place in the nearby town of Healdsburg, California that me and my roommates found out about. It was a uh, wrestling promotion, all pro wrestling APW. They still exist to this day, based kind of down in the South San Francisco area. Uh, we're about an hour north of San Francisco, or were at the time when I lived in Santa Rosa. Um, I don't live there anymore. Anyhow, um, my roommates and I decided to go to this event. I had never been to uh, an indie level wrestling show before. I'd only been to big arena wcw and wwf events so we went to this show and um, at least one of the performers on this show is still a nationally televised wrestling star today uh, christopher daniels you can see him now on all elite wrestling aew but at the time i didn't really know who any of these people were um, a few other um, independent wrestlers of note were on the show michael modest um, shooter tony jones Anyway, we go to the show, and my roommates and I had general admission seating. This show was at a, it might have been a boys and girls club. I might be transposing that with another community center type place in Healdsburg. But in any case, it was in a small community center. So general admission meant you were seated like two rows away from the ring, and then VIP seats were some folding chairs set up right in front of the ring. And at this time, I had not seen ISR for a few years, I believe, because um, this was a couple years after the movie theater. Um, but as I walked in, lo and behold, there he was sitting in the VIP seats. And uh, he and I, that's one of the things we had bonded about when we worked at the movie theater was our interest in professional wrestling. And um, this is just an example of what it means to kind of have that uh, meaningful passion about your interests. When he and I would talk about wrestling, it wasn't just kind of like, oh, I sort of liked Hulk Hogan. Did you? Yeah, he was okay. We were able to have these, like we could we could deep dive on like a, uh, a WCW Nitro promo where Scott Steiner was going off about Buff Bagwell having uh, toys in the attic, broken toys. And we'd both seen it. We both knew where we were when it was happening. And then we could talk about other memories we had adjacent to that, et cetera, et cetera. That, that, see where I'm going here? This is, this is the, the wonder of, uh, of, of passionately deep diving into your hobbies, sharing that enthusiasm with others. It leads to talking about all kinds of stuff. And at the end of the day, it's more fun to be able to have meaningful conversations and talk with people than just sort of twiddle your thumbs, I guess. Anyway, ISR's in there. He's with this guy that he was friends with at the time that I knew through some other people. And they're in the front row. 
And, uh, you know, I'm just kind of mildly at this event, but they're in there and they're chanting and they're, they have like, they know all the, the, the guys, uh, catchphrases, these indie level guys, and they're like waving their VIP tickets at them and, and booing the, the baby faces or cheering the baby faces, booing the heels. Maybe they were doing it the other way around. Who knows? But anyway, I was just blown away. I was like, oh, that's what it means to be a wrestling fan. And this was kind of in the day before that style of wrestling fan had sort of been codified. Like now you watch even just the most mainstream WWE programming and everyone's chanting, this is awesome and, and doing all the, the smart mark uh, behavior. But ISR was really um, on the vanguard of this. And I just remember witnessing that from a few rows back in general admission and being like, man, that's the kind of wrestling fan I want to be. And I don't even think ISR is that into wrestling anymore. Um, but I took that ball and ran with it. And he was a big part of it. And thus, through a very roundabout way, uh, by explaining my connection to ISR and some general examples of my overall worldview and that last specific anecdote, hopefully I've shed a bit of light on what I'm all about and what the tone of this show is going to be going forward. In the meantime, we've got two more segments for you before closing out this debut 2.0 episode. Stick around, and up next, we will be talking about some G.I. Joe comic book reading I've been doing of late and how it connects to things that are happening in the world today. We'll be right back with more of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Yo, Joe! We'll fight for freedom wherever there's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe against Cobra, the enemy, fighting to save the day. He never gives up, he's always there, fighting for freedom over land and air. G.I. Joe! G.I. Joe is the code name for America's daring, highly trained special mission force. Its purpose, to defend human freedom against COBRA, a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world. He never gives up, he'll stay till the fight's won. G.I. Joe will dare. G.I. Joe! G.I. Joe! Yo, Joe! You know, it's funny, anytime I hear the G.I. Joe uh, cartoon theme music now, I think back to this time that had to have been um, over 15 years ago now because it was before my wife, Ms. Sensational, and I had children, and our oldest, Miss Sensational One, is now 15. So anyway, sometime over 15 years ago, we were living in the city of Oakland, California. We were living in an apartment in an old historical apartment building on Alice Street, and uh, there was some remodeling going on in the uh, building next door to us. And so our living room window faced that building and faced all the construction that was going on. And one day, um, the construction workers were out there, and uh, I kept hearing this one over and over again, just saying, G.I. Joe! G.I. Joe! Until finally, after about five minutes, I heard another guy yell, Shut up! And that's pretty much what I was thinking, too. So anyway... Um, forever wedded to that song in my memory has that random day on Alice Street in Oakland, California. wonder what those guys are up to right now. God only knows. Anyway, um, we're going to delve into a little G.I. Joe talk 
here, um, which probably isn't anything new for longtime listeners to the IC Robots Radio Network. As if you've been following the Stuck at Home show, IC Robots has been deep into the world of Joe collection, restoration, reminiscing of late. And it was actually listening to him talking about Joe toys that got me thinking about Joe's and got me realizing the G.I. Joe franchise played a huge part in my development as a child, my uh, the development of my imagination, my aesthetic worldview. But it's a franchise that, while it's always there at the back of my mind, I've kind of lost touch with over the decades and kind of forgotten why it played such an important role for me and what it was all about. So I, I decided to revisit the world of G.I. Joe lately, and to do so by diving back into what was probably, I mean, the toys were probably the aspect of G.I. Joe's that I was the most uh, attached to, but the one that I really um, clicked with the most intellectually, I guess you would say, would be the G.I. Joe, the original run of the Marvel comics written by Larry Hama. So I decided, you know, I hadn't read those since I actually read them in real time as a child, which is funny because I don't even remember how, as I'm rereading these, which we'll get into, I'm realizing I had most of these issues as a kid, but I don't remember where I got them from. I was reading them before, you know, before I was uh, hanging out at comic book stores. At this point, like any comic books I got were from 7-Eleven or from like a spinner rack at a Greyhound station. Um, so I, I can't remember how I came into possession of these Joe comics or if I even possessed them. I might've been borrowing them from someone and reading them, but it, it's been interesting to me how many of them I, I vividly remember, uh, reading in real time. But anyhow, I decided to revisit this series since I hadn't read it since I was a child. And I think I was about in fourth grade in 1986 when I was reading them, um, so I was curious to see what they were all about, um, how my memories of them held up with what's actually on the page now, um, apprehending it as an adult, and if the series had anything left to offer me at my now very advanced age of 43. And at the time of recording this, I am at, let me see here, I'm on issue 33 of the original G.I. Joe run um, from Marvel Comics, um, so I'm, I think I'm deep enough in now to have some uh, reflections and conclusions. And just as a general overview, uh, the Marvel Joe series um, falls into the category of a lot of um, interests from my youth in that from an adult perspective, it remains intriguing but imperfect. And this tends to be an issue with most of the things I'm interested in. Um, I tend to be drawn to fictional worlds, fictional systems where you have a cast of very colorful characters um, and different alliances with one another locked into endless struggle, endless Zoroastrian struggle between good and bad that can sometimes be fluid. Um, It's what originally drew me to the G.I. Joes, to Transformers, uh, to professional wrestling, etc., etc. But the problem with all of these things is um, they tend to exist in a format being marketed to children, ultimately. And so they're never going to quite live up to what I'm looking for out of them, even when I was a child. 
Um, like when I was into He-Man toys, Masters of the Universe franchise as a child, I wanted a grim struggle uh, between the forces of Skull and the forces of Skeletor in a grisly swords and sorcery setting. I didn't necessarily need um, all of the ha-ha and such that was um, put into the cartoons, um, ostensibly to appeal to children, which I was at the time, but even then it irritated me. Why, why do we need comedy? You know, comedy's fine when it's a comedy, when you want to see a, a, a serious, grim struggle, an epic struggle for the ages. Why do we always need to have all the comedy? This happens, drives me nuts with wrestling, too. People are uh, obsessed with this idea that uh, professional wrestling, there's got to be funny joke, haha, look at the big men dancing, when really I just want to see... Akira Maeda and Nobuhiko Takata kicking each other. But I digress. Back to G.I. Joe and the Marvel Joe comic in particular. Um, I feel like in uh, of the many franchises I've revisited as, revisited as an adult, um, it strikes one of the better balances of really taking itself seriously and not insulting its audience. Now, of course, it could be even better if it wasn't a toy advertisement but that's kind of the whole magic of the Joe comic is that Hama was given this toy title that no one cared about and was more or less able to make it into something in his own image, something that, that he wanted it to be. And so while there are some uh, limitations to the title um, based on its toy status, um, it's pretty well fleshed out and it's a pretty, um, it stands up pretty well all these years later. And the main reason for this is really uh, what it was that Larry Hama was trying to get across um, with his vision of the G.I. Joe world. And it's funny because that vision um, is pretty interesting um, when you look at where our country is today in 2020 um, in comparison with the message he was trying to put out there back in the 1980s. Um, when you look at the Joes, um, you see what on the surface appears to be these machine gun toting, draped in the flag, uh, macho men who could very well be mistaken as a sort of PSA um, promoting a militaristic brand of fascistic nationalism. And back when I was a small child, that's precisely what my poor uh, hippie parents uh, thought of them when uh, I first became enamored with the Joes um, at trips down to the uh, Coronet uh, dime store in Atascadero, California, and I wanted to start buying them. And uh, it was quite a protracted campaign on my own part against my parents, um, speaking of militarism. Uh, just lobbying to start being able to buy these toys, to be able to watch the cartoon, to be able to read the comic books, because my parents um, fell, unfortunately, into the camp of believing that if a child plays with a violent toy or sees a violent image, they themselves will become violent. And I am living proof that um, there is probably no one with more interest in violent imagery than me who has never been in so much as a minor... Uh, physical scuffle in their life. Um, fantasy does not equal reality, and in fact, um, fantasy can act as a very good catharsis for purging ourselves of these uh, violent tendencies and other um, impulses that we don't necessarily want to have um, actually 
cropping up in our real personal lives. That said, my parents thought that the Joes were some kind of right-wing recruiting tool that was going to have me uh, signing up for selective service the day after I bought gung-ho. Um, that was not the case, um, but furthermore, that's not what the Joes are all about, particularly if you follow the Larry Hama continuity. Now, being a child um, growing up in the 80s during the Cold War, then coming of age as a teenager and young adult, entering the era of Iraq and Afghanistan, and now as uh, I enter middle age in the years of Donald Trump, I feel like there's always this American mythos that living in the United States, one is either a quote-unquote liberal who fundamentally doesn't believe in the country, um, thinks other countries are better, um, and is uh, ultimately kind of disloyal to the all-American militaristic idea of being an American, or one is a quote-unquote conservative who unquestioningly uh, believes in arming oneself to the teeth, um, militaristic incursions into other countries, um, and that um, just blind loyalty to a right-wing agenda is what it means to be patriotic. I, there's And then there's gradations in between for sure. But Hamas Joes asked us to imagine a third way, in my opinion, a much better way, and a much better America. So at this point, uh, 30 issues or whatever I said I was into the Marvel run, what's become really clear to me is that Hama's G.I. Joes are not fighting an external threat. In fact, the one, the couple of times that they've encountered foreign forces um, in the series so far, they've actually ended up uh, having to join forces uh, with the October Guard, um, I think they also had some uh, interactions with uh, some Afghani forces at one point around that same time where they met the October Guard. But in any, in any case, the story of G.I. Joe is not a story of America versus external uh, threats. The story of Larry, Larry Hama's G.I. Joe's is America versus internal existential crisis in the form of Cobra. And again, Cobra is not the Russians. Cobra is not some Arabic uh, terrorist organization. Cobra comes from a small, all-American town called Springfield. Cobra Commander was a failed salesman. And Cobra's followers are mindless cultists who have embraced fascism uh, in an attempt to really um, destroy the United States of America. And it's funny, there was a wildly prescient scene in uh, issue 29, one of the last issues I read, um, which I'll just share here. Um, Cobra Commander has... Returned to Springfield after some time away and is holding a huge rally, a rally that looks very similar to um, some rallies that we've been familiar with over the last four years here in uh, real world 2020 and back to 2016 United States. So he's at, having this huge rally in Springfield. Um, there's a, a brass band playing. Troops are out. Um, followers are there. He's behind a podium. And... Um, He's telling his followers, do not let the false rumors of our military mishaps alarm you. Cobra is winning! And they've just been handed a big defeat. So that sounds kind of familiar. Um, when the citizenry loll back on their fat haunches and hire the poor minorities to do their dirty work, we win! 
When love of money eclipses moral conviction, we win. When good men see the ascension of evil and do nothing, we win. Then it gets really good. Our household cleaning product pyramid scheme grows exponentially. It is a money-making juggernaut. It is based on man's willingness to exploit his neighbors. Our nationwide greed is good for you seminars are filled to capacity. And our media department has succeeded in selling 10 more mindless sitcoms to the networks to further lower the intelligence of America. Armies of Cobra accountants advise millions of Americans to cheat on their taxes, denying funds to the government and prompting cuts in defense spending. <laughs> so what you see here is really fascinating um, because Hama lays out uh, the threat of Cobra as really a threat against um, American infrastructure, public infrastructure, um, and the public's... Um, Willingness to participate civically, to realize that freedom means having a shared civic responsibility. It does not, I mean, it it can mean freedom in the sense of just wild, inflictive freedom. Like, I do whatever I want, uh, consequences be damned, and if you don't like it, the only way you can stop it is by trying to kill me in a barehanded brawl. That's one version of freedom, one vision of freedom. It's a very sad vision of freedom, I think. It's a vision of freedom that we're seeing with people that somehow think that not following um, sound public health guidelines and not wearing masks is a uh, sign of freedom. Um, Somehow completely not taking into account um, the freedom of many more multitudes of people to not be exposed to your um, negligence. But all too often, this Cobra um, illusion of freedom is what, in the years since, we as Americans have ended up um, really elevating. And it's too bad. And this is what the Joes are really fighting against in uh, Hama's uh, Marvel run. And well, how are they fighting it? They're fighting it through teamwork. They're fighting it through responsibility. They're uh, fighting it uh, through care for one another. And not in some, I mean, you know, people like to make fun of that. Oh, you care about people. It's not even in some like namby-pamby way. It's just, it's in order to have any kind of meaningful life, any kind of uh, uh, prosperous country, there has to be some amount of, of, you know, mutual responsibility. If, If it's every man for himself, we got Mad Max, and Mad Max was a great movie uh, franchise, but not really one that you would want to live in. But I feel like it's one that we are increasingly hurtling towards. And I don't think that you need to be a some sort of uh, radical to think that you want to live in a place where where people have access to what they need to to have basic functioning lives. That's going to make your life better. It's going to make everyone else's life better. So, um, revisiting uh, the Joe run has been a little bit depressing in that regard because now that I look back and I see what uh, Hama envisioned the Joes being all about, which was teamwork, responsibility, and care for one another, um, whereas Cobra was pyramid schemes and um, undermining common public good, common public infrastructure, I see from my vantage point in 2020 that Cobra has in fact won. Um, whether that will be an enduring victory or not, that's up to me and you. I'm going to do my best to make sure that doesn't happen. You'll have to make the choice that you feel is right. Yo, Joe!
are back with this, the final segment of the first episode of the reboot of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Uh, we're going to bring the mood down even a little further um, now that I'm off my soapbox um, about G.I. Joe and the state of our Cobra country that we live in today. Um, now we're going to talk about death and dying. So over here at uh, Sensational Manor where I live... Um, we've been sort of surrounded with death for over a year now, and it all started, um, at the previous location of Sensational Manor, um, before we, uh, transported, um, the estate, um, much in the way that the Castlevania Castle transports. Um, when the estate was, uh, formerly located in Santa Rosa, California, um, just as we were preparing to transport it to where we reside now in Napa, California, um, our 17-year-old cat Arnold died. And um, Arnold's death was actually, it was a planned event. Um, he was in declining health and increasingly uncomfortable and just by all objective standards at the end of his life. And so we ended up uh, busting this really... Um, positive gimmick, which, uh, of hiring a mobile vet to come to the house and put him to sleep as it were, put him to his final end. Um, and so, yeah, it was a positive experience. I mean, it was sad cause the cat had been with us for, as I said, 17 years. So through many different stages of life. So as much as it was mourning for a pet, it was also just kind of looking back and mourning over various stages of life long since gone. Um, but it was nice that it happened at home and um, it was an overall positive experience that needed to happen. Now, um, just a few months after that, after we had moved to Napa, California, um, we had a pair of uh, black cats, Midnight and Summer, and um, Midnight suddenly fell ill. And Midnight was only seven years old, so she wasn't really old enough to necessarily be at the end of the road, but she got really violently ill, lost a ton of weight, was in um, noticeable distress. So she actually had to be taken to the vet and put to sleep. Or uh, I don't know, those euphemisms are kind of lame. <laughs> she, she was killed at the vet, uh, you know, but it was humane, humane killing. It had to happen. She was, probably had cancer or some, some kind of chronic or terminal, rather, uh, disease that ended her life shortly. So anyway, that was kind of a bit much to go through two cats in a matter of months. On the plus side, however, we have since introduced two new cats to the sensational household, Ozzy and Flynn, um, who are both uh, about a year old now, a little over a year, and just uh, two little dudes raising hell around the manor. Um, but we love them. They're great new additions to the family. 
But in any case, um, the theme continued as, um, you know, once we kind of settled in from all of that, um, back in March, the uh, COVID pandemic really began in earnest here in the States. And particularly for the first uh, couple weeks, you know, death was heavy on the mind because at the time it was really unclear what the deal was with this virus. It, it, I feel like in the, those early few weeks, it felt like more of, I mean, it never really felt like an extinction level event, but it definitely the, the imminent, imminent death being the uh, chief concern related to COVID um, was pretty strong in the first few weeks, at least for me. Uh, I didn't necessarily think I was imminently going to die, but it just death felt uh, very much more um, central to COVID in those first couple of weeks. Not that it's not still a fatal disease in many cases, um, but it just it's the 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 death part is a little less heavy now as we are learning to live in some ways with this uh, pandemic virus. Um, but in any case, death was back on the table, and right around that same time, my dad who. Um, would have been turning 78 in November. His health, which had been very bad for very many years, um, finally took its um, last descent into so bad that there was no coming back. Uh, my dad had had, uh, he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis uh, when he was in his early 40s, about the age I'm at now. And his version, it was kind of a chronic progressive disease. So he lost more and more use of his body over the years to where... Towards the end, he was mostly like almost a quadriplegic. He had like very limited, he could control his wheelchair kind of to move around a bit and he could still speak, but very, very little uh, use of limbs or any kind of locomotion and diminishing quality of life. And it's actually kind of amazing that he lived for as long as he did um, just because, you know, he was confined to a wheelchair for, for a long time with like no real exercise and no, um, you know, ripe for a lot of health problems, which he never really got until the very end. Ended up uh, developing um, life-threatening uh, wounds from, you know, constantly being in a chair, uh, which, I, as uh, he pointed out to me towards the end, um, it's basically what the guy that played uh, Superman, Dean Cain, died from. Now, don't get it twisted. Dean Cain's alive and well. I'm pretty sure he meant Christopher Reeves. But in any case... Um, he had the amazing timing of going into a downward health spiral right at the beginning of COVID, um, but it all worked out. Uh, my parents ended up getting hospice care, so like a nurse would come to the house and check on him a couple times a week, and ultimately he chose to go the path of um, medical end of life since his end of life was coming one way or the other he decided it would be more positive to have control over when it happened and to not have it happen through some agonizing uh, complications or something. Uh, and thankfully, uh, one of the positives of living here in the state of California is we are legally afforded um, the ability to make that choice. And I hadn't really had a lot of um, experience or exposure to this outside of it, you know, just from an academic abstract level. Um, actually, you know, my grandma did it, but she was also in like 92. So it was, just, that would even seem more abstract, but, um, being there for, uh, my dad's demise, as he put it, he called me to invite me to, uh, I'm inviting you next week to my final demise. Be there at 10 o'clock Wednesday. 
Um, literal conversation we had. Um, anyway, being there for it and seeing what happened and seeing this person that was going to die, that just was confined to a hospital bed in his house, no quality of life left whatsoever, was able to be surrounded by his wife, his two kids, and uh, they're my mom and his be- best friend couple. Um, everyone was able to say their goodbyes. Uh, everyone knew it was happening. He took the medication, immediately fell asleep, and was gone without distress 45 minutes later. I cannot stress what a tremendously positive experience that was. In the case of someone, you know, where there's just no no other real reality or option, um, man, it was just, I, I can't imagine, you know, just waiting for it to happen or going through all the uh, horrible stuff that that would have entailed. This was, it was a very positive uh, event. Um, I didn't have the easiest relationship with my dad. There was definitely some uh, estrangement there, but we were able to, you know, leave things on a good note at the end. And um, overall, you know, no, it just felt very natural. And then as a postscript to that, um, just last week, um, a few weeks after my dad died, um, the theme continued as... My dad's best friend, who'd been a family friend of ours, I've known since I was, you know, knee high, um, a guy named Rich, who my middle name, Richard, I'm named after him, uh, he died So <laughs> at the age of 73. So the hits keep coming. Uh, that one was hard because uh, Rich was a guy that I would see like once every 20 years um, and always, uh, always a kick hanging out with him. Didn't expect to ever see him often, but expected to see him again sometime. But uh, didn't really get to have that same kind of closure there. So that's that's kind of a bummer. And that's where this comes. The whole reason I'm, I'm bringing up this downer topic and where it comes full circle to how this episode started is um, in the wake of all this, I've been having some issues um, where uh, I'll wake up in, in the middle of the night just in a panic. And... Um, I start sort of panicking about this idea that I'm at a place in life now where there's people I knew at one point in time, like maybe in my teens, 20s, um, passing acquaintance, someone I hung out with a few times, who um, haven't seen since, and I can no longer even necessarily remember their name, sometimes not even their face, just kind of a general presence. And for some reason, this just freaks me out because it's like, um, what's actually scary about the prospect of death? It's not necessarily the the pain you might experience on your way there, uh, or any of that. It's it's the um, the idea that that you're just going to enter into nothingness, and somehow be conscious of that nothingness. Which I guess that doesn't really make sense, but that's the fear, right? That that there's just nothing's going to be there. So, you know, people like to formulate some idea that maybe there's some way you'll continue in some other form of consciousness, or you'll continue to be able to you'll be able to find the people that you knew in life, you know somehow find them in whatever they're forming now. But then in the middle of the night, when my thoughts are all jumbled, I'm thinking, gosh, if I can't, if there's people I can't even remember now alive, how is there anything on the other side? You know, how is there any, any kind of meaning? Um, I, the, the whole virus thing has been freaking me out about that too. Cause like I, I listened to some, listened to a, uh, New York times podcast where a doctor was answering questions from kids about, uh, what a virus was or how a virus works. And so he was given this kind of anthropomorphic, um, description of a virus as this, uh, mindless being that just continues to replicate itself using hosts, uh, for no reason other than to continue existing and to exist further and more. And it just kind of got me thinking in a physical world where something like that exists, 
how is there, how does anything mean anything? And how are we just not the same thing? How, how are we not just uh, deluding ourselves that, that there's any meaning to any of this, that we're not just a virus replicating ourselves that can't even remember people we met or places we visited 20 years ago? Um, and the truth is, we can never really know that, but we know what we experience. And I certainly experience meaning in uh, the story of, of my life and the story of other people's life that I encounter and the story that emerges out of those lives colliding. And I, I mean, I guess that's what we can do. You can tell your story and listen to the story of others and take those stories seriously. And that's the note that we'll close out on here today, how uh, other people's stories can influence our own stories and make us see things in a different way. Um, and I'm going to bring it back to where we started this episode, um, talking about IC robots. And on a recent episode of his Stuck at Home show, actually, I think a few recent episodes of the show, uh, he'd kind of been talking about um, sitcoms he was into when he was younger kind of a trifecta of sitcoms, including MASH, uh, Taxi, and WKRP in Cincinnati. And it's funny because I had my own experience with these shows. And in my case, I it's not that I actively disliked them, but I did not think of them positively because I thought of these shows as kind of the uh, dreary, monochromatic-looking shows with adults in them that would come on on the heels of... Um, either cartoons or maybe live action Batman that I was watching on KOFY TV 20 in stereo at my grandma's house. And then, you know, Batman would end and then like MASH and WKRP and all those would come on. And that, that would be the end of my fun. Cause I wanted to see superheroes. I don't want to see, I didn't want to see adults talking about stuff that I didn't understand. But um, the point of this is not to belittle the fact that IC robots was into these shows. It was actually him talking about what they were actually about, what they meant to him, where he was at in his life when uh, he saw them, uh, how uh, the fact that the Super Nintendo went into his brother's room, led him onto this divergent path where he went more into the arms of sitcoms and television shows. Um, it, it elevated me to a whole new understanding of what those shows could mean for some someone. Um, and it made me think back about what they didn't mean to me, but what else I was thinking and feeling at that time. And it was just kind of this, that's the beauty of, of us sharing these stupid stories and stupid things we're interested in. And um, you out there listening to it and um, thinking about how it integrates into your life and into your memories and into your own story. And maybe you, hopefully you will have generosity of spirit to share your own memories with others and they will have uh, the generosity of spirit to uh, be attentive listeners and let you speak your piece. Um, so humorously enough, uh, this brought up a memory from many, many years ago that I actually can vividly remember. So it just goes to show that as some things are lost to the sands of time, some things are kind of more permanent in that stream of memory. So maybe there is uh, something behind all this after all. Maybe there is something to hang our hat on to latch onto. But this was a funny little moment that happened to me that I'll share with you that uh, I wanted to share with IC Robots, but I'll, I'll just make this public. I was telling him a funny thing about his interest in taxi and all that is um, many moons ago, several lives ago in my own life, um, I was working at a recording studio in Petaluma, California. And this recording studio has been um, kind of a spot of a source of some of these memories that drive me nuts where I realize there's these things that I just can't, I've lost forever. Because we had a steady stream of bands and individuals that would come in there to record music. And in the moment, each act that was in their recording 
seemed super memorable because you, you, recording is a really involved process. And as the engineer, you're really working closely with this person who's doing their art. And it just feels like this really intense, elevated experience. And I'm going to re remember it forever, man. But looking back, I can barely remember anyone I recorded um, there other than a few uh, people that I already knew outside of uh, the studio. But anyway, um, one day we had this act coming in and it was two guys. And of course, I can't remember the, the other guy, but the main guy it was the main guy and his backup musician. And he was coming in to record this crazy like prog rock music and um, drove up into the driveway of the studio in this old convertible and was regaling us with tales of uh, how he'd like slept on the deck of a winery the night before. Just kind of big guy, big personality, real memorable guy. His name is Alex. But I didn't know what his background was. I didn't know why he seemed to be living such a wild and large life. Um, but that night, the owner of the studio and I went out on the town in Petaluma, California, as we often did after work. And we were drinking at a bar. And we were talking to a patron at the bar about how we were recording this guy, Alex. And um, the patron was like, well, you know who that guy, who Alex is, right? And we're like, no. I mean, he's Alex. He's came in to record. He's like, well, you know who his dad is, right? Like, no. Turns out his dad is none other than sitcom star Judd Hirsch of Taxi, Dear John, uh, Numb Threers, and probably many other shows, who I'm not super familiar with myself other than knowing who he is, but I knew that um, for IC Robots, uh, Judd Hirsch was probably a large figure because he did figure prominently in Taxi, which I know is a show near and dear to Icy Robot's heart. Um, so anyway, the next day, um, day two of the recording, we went back to Alex and I didn't know if I wanted to say anything or not because I didn't want him to. I didn't want things to get weird. You know, sometimes sometimes people resent it if they're like the child of a prominent person. You bring that up because they want to be known in their own right. But I'm just sitting there watching him play all these crazy prog rock solos and math rock stuff and singing. And the entire time, I just can't get out of my mind that he looks like a, a younger blonder. Judd Hirsch. And it's like, how did I not realize that's who this, this guy's dad was? So finally I just had to be like, oh, you know, someone told us yesterday that your dad's Judd Hirsch. I was like, oh yeah, yeah. And so we kind of shot the breeze about that for a bit. And, uh, he was, he, you know, was chill about it. Didn't seem to mind. Um, but also didn't really belabor the point. We just kind of talked about it briefly. Um, but it's just kind of one of those weird, funny things. The, the, the celebrity connection didn't mean a lot to me. Um, although it was interesting, but then it's also funny cause I, I knew that there's people out there in the world that really, uh, that those shows like Taxi were um, a, a huge part of their life. So I kind of got a kick out of it uh, vicariously. Um, and it's just one of, it was one of those transitory fleeting moments that for whatever reason really latched into my memory and I remember it vividly and I can still feel like I'm sitting in that uh, recording room with Alex as he's uh, playing his wild and crazy guitar solos. So Alex, wherever you are out there, man, hope you're still rocking in the free world. Um, but yeah, memories matter. Stories matter. They're what we have. They're what we hang on to. They're how we communicate with each other. They're how, they're how we live together. And that's what we got to do in this, uh, messed up cobra infested world of ours is figure out how to live together in a meaningful way because life's too short to hoard. Life's too short to be afraid of everyone. And life is too short to uh, try to take over Midwestern towns with pyramid schemes. And on that note, this is Mr. Sensational Gino Vega. You can get a hold of me at Sensational Vega on Twitter. Um, I am in the process as I'm recording this and before it goes live of blowing up my old Twitter account that had kind of gone feral and retooling it. So if you had been following me or I had been following you before, I'm probably 
not now, so hit me a refollow or I'll look you up if we're someone that we were following mutually before. Um, you can look me up on Facebook, Gino Vega, and send me a friend request. I will accept any and all friend requests um, related to this show. Uh, I'm also on Instagram uh, at Sensational Vega, I believe. Um, also on Twitter at Piro Stuff. If you want to follow me for my wrestling uh, gimmick, I talk about Japanese and independent and historical uh, wrestling. Um, also, PiroStuff.com is a website of mine, and I'm going to be launching uh, SensationalVega.com. Um, it's kind of a companion to this show, so that may or may not be live by the time this show airs on the IC Robots Radio Network. And so, until next time again, I am Mr. Sensational Gino Vega. This is the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. See you again soon. Coffee, TV 20, San Francisco.